Hello and welcome to Civic Sparks, the only live show that discusses everything Civic except Hondas. Before we get started, I want to give a quick shout out to our friends at 423media.com who provide all the motion graphics, audio, and overlays for the show. See 423media for all your media needs from websites to voiceovers. They've got it covered. 423media.com. And real quick, I want to say, I never do this, but today I'm going to do this. It's the last show of the season, so why not? It's my special holiday gift to a great man in his organization. For any of you who've read my book, you know that I talk about mentorship and how everyone should have a mentor. And that goes for even those in high places in the C-suite too. But when it comes to Agile, my mentor, whom I just spent the last two days with expanding my Agile knowledge, is V. Lee Henson. Folks, if you want to know about Agile project management or Agile leadership, Lee and his staff are your go-to. They can get in touch with them, sign up for a course, download some great Agile learning material at agiledad.com. And just to be very transparent, Lee, nor AgileDad.com, did not in any way pay me to say this. This is just a shout out because I love what Lee does and how he impacts people's lives. And if you want to also be impacted in the world of Agile, go visit Lee and his staff at AgileDad.com. Moving on. Usually we go live with guests, but tonight you get me live due to a scheduling conflict. Sorry, but that's the case. Earlier this week, I got the chance to meet with Michael Baskin, the Chief Innovation Officer for Montgomery County, Maryland, and here's what he had to say. So uh, I, I want to start off by asking the same question that I ask all of my civic-minded guests, and that is, what drove you to being so passionate about the public sector, and why are you doing public sector work? Wow. Um, well, thanks, Brandon. Thanks for having me. Um, I, I got really lucky when I was growing up. Um, and I showed up for the pizza when Mayor Menino um, had lots of young people in for this thing called the Mayor's Youth Council, which you'll remember we then did in Chattanooga. And um, he had all these young people in, uh, and, and Patty, who, who ran the Mayor's Youth Council for a long time, she um, went and asked the mayor, so legend has it, she went and asked the mayor, what do you want the youths to do? And Mayor Menino said, well, he mumbled, so no one actually knows what he said, but what we think what he said is, um, I want them to tell me what to do. And certainly that's what his ethos was. And it was this incredibly powerful moment um, because if you were the chief of police and you were going to launch a program that involved young people and you went to the mayor with that program, the mayor wanted to know, uh, you know, have you talked to the youths yet? And as a young person, he, they made it really clear that it was honest to go and consult with our peers as well. And now that Mayor's Youth Council in Boston has over a million dollars um, in participatory budget that they are responsible for, uh, that youth bring the ideas for, that young people um, vote on, and that young people allocate. And so to get to be a part of that at a young age, um, I saw sort of two things that have stuck with me. One was just how cool city government is. Um, you are so close to your neighbors. Uh, you are not siloed away. And it is a mix of everyone from police to sanitation workers, to lawyers, to economists, to people who do real estate, to people who take people's land away. And it's just right there making a difference um, with everything uh, connected together. Uh, and two, there's a really valuable lesson there and uh, the power of uh, never about me without me um, that we've tried to hold fast to in this work. Yeah, it is important. And uh, I, I actually thank you for doing civics and for being part of this because it is it's rare and it's hard to get we've tried we try to get uh, millennials and we try to get some of the my generation my my daughter i know is very interested in what i do and why yeah. i'm so passionate about uh, civics and why i'm so passionate about public service 
and giving back to the community and doing what's necessary to try to change society for the better for all people. And, wow. you know, um, it's good that you're doing that. So I appreciate that. Yeah. Brent, I, I would just note that, I mean, the, we see so much more interest in this now. And, you know, for those of us who have been serving in, in government during the COVID times, there's a lot of exhaustion and there's a lot of burnout. But I think so many of us ask like, well, where else would you rather be? Um, you know, there is something really powerful when it's one thing to go to a COVID testing site um, and see where there might be things that may be, it might be made better. And it's a totally other thing to get to go to a COVID testing site and actually get to make those, those things better. Um, and, you know, government is a really powerful organ. Um, and when we talk about all of the structures and systemic racism and the structures that, that live and shape people's lives, um, there is a role for people on the outside and there's a role for people on the inside. Um, and there's a great space that we can be on the inside for creating change. I want to jump real quick into your title, Chief Inf Innovation Officer for Montgomery County, Maryland. Give us a little idea of what that's like. And do you work with policy? Do you work with just innovation type things? I know you're not from a tech background uh, discipline per se. So give us a little insight into that. Yeah, Brad, sure. So uh, first of all, one of the main things we do is uh, inside of Montgomery County, we don't use that title. Um, so um, we, where's coming from? Sorry. Um, we, we don't think that titles are, are particularly useful. Um, we've got over 9,000 people in our government here in Montgomery County, Maryland, and we see all of them as innovators. And part of my role is creating space um, for everyone to recognize the power inside of themselves uh, to go and create change. And so when we talk about innovation in Montgomery County, we're talking about um, human behavior change, right? So sometimes it can be the really, really small things, uh, the changing of a form. But if that form had an error in it, and as a result has to be processed over and over and over again, um, that's, that's, that's hard for the people who work in government. It's even harder for the people who we serve. And so um, using a mix of tools, process improvement tools, human-centered design tools, we just brought on an awesome team of civic designers, behavioral science, uh, and some good old community organizing inside of government. Um, we seek to build power for all of those who want to make things effective, efficient, and equitable or human and just and liberating. So titles of formality. Yeah. We think that uh, I, uh, I'll, I'll quote uh, Fred Lelou here that title, titles are honeypots for the ego. Um, it helps I can come from a place of privilege where I don't feel the need for the title. Um, but I think especially, um, you know, I sit in the county executive's office. And um, as you remember, when I was in the mayor's office in Chattanooga, right, even the IT staff, we got treated differently uh, because we had that power and that was invisible. And so we then stopped seeing the pain that so many of the rest of our fellow workers in government were seeing and feeling. And so I think when you have that separation, when, when uh, privilege inside of an organization uh, means that there's insulation from the, the real pain that people go through, then you lose the energy and the power to then uh, remove those pain points. Um, and I think a, a huge part of what we do is try to remove pain points uh, to make things better. That's a fantastic point. I know I spend a lot of time with my staff 
as an individual, not just as a, as a, as a leader. And I try to break down those barriers. And in the agile world, what we call that is the invisible gun. You carry the invisible gun because you are in a position of power or you are the manager or you are the leader or you are the department head or whatever the case may be. So it's, it's good to be able to look at things from a, from a different perspective like that, but it takes time. I think, I think, I think that that's a, that's a very difficult thing to achieve because, you know, you walk in a room and this meeting starts or whatever the case may be or whatever you're doing, and you've got these people that are instantly, okay, that's the boss. We're going to sit down, we're going to listen, we're going to pay attention versus what you are describing to me is what the, the, the kind of environment in which you guys are trying to create. Yeah, I think the key word there, Brent, is trying. Um, this work is tough, right? Um, and we are experimenting with what the future of organizations might look like. Um, in government, in a democracy. And so, you know, you mentioned millennials and then the generation after millennials, um, which we're lucky to have one of on our team here. And, um, you know, the, the form of organizations is rapidly evolving. And if we want to continue to bring and grow and retain the top talent in local government, and I believe our democracy depends on delivery, so we have to be able, be able to deliver. Um, Brent, then um, if our organizational forms stay static and stagnant, then people aren't going to want to join and grow and be a part of government. So Montgomery County, as, as you look at other local governments elsewhere, we're looking at uh, potentially a 50% turnover rate in the next five years. And that is a radical opportunity to reimagine yep. government. Yeah. And we think, right, like, right, you know, there is a possibility that those of us in government could be sending out a bunch of telegrams to people. And I'll, I'll use a technology metaphor here, right? Could be sending out a bunch of telegrams saying, hey, we're really looking for the next generation of workers who really knows how to use email. Yeah. The people who are getting those telegrams, even if they can use email, might not be the people that we want, especially when we want to think about, like, you know, email is also a, a potentially a fading technology. So I want to I want to touch on something you said a minute ago. You 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 said that you're trying, and I love the fact that you are saying that because when you talk about innovation, you don't just go out and innovate. You have to try. You have to fail. You have to try. You have to fail. You have to try. You know, Yoda said there is no try. There's only do. But I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think you have to continuously you know keep at it and go and go and go. I, mean, I think that's what he meant. But you know, yeah. so is that something that I know that's the message you're trying to get across, but is that something as an organization, as an agency from a, a government standpoint that you're trying to model for other government agencies? Yeah, we try to, I mean, we have this incredible privilege of, of having room to fail. And um, Nigel Jacobs, who leads the mayor's office for New Urban Mechanics in Boston, um, described his role as being a risk aggregator. And I thought that was really powerful. So when we're working with partner departments, um, they uh, we want to say that, look, um, we're here um, because you're playing with us. If you want to have this space and this goes wrong, we're here to eat a lot of that failure and then celebrate the heck out of you when you succeed. And that's the same sort of thing that we try to tell the Innovation Accelerators, which is our community of change makers here in Montgomery County, um, the same thing, right? Like it is, it, and what we try to do is give them the structured, a structured process that allows folks to fail as quickly as possible and in a way that creates learning. Um, there's a, a great report out by the Center for Public Impact. It cites some of our work, um, but a lot of other work that talks about sort of that fail forward concept in government. And it's something that's really easy to take for granted outside of government, um, but can be really hard to do in government. Um, I remember when we were in Chattanooga, Brent, and um, we were looking on some behavioral 
science techniques and tools. Um, and uh, some mistakes were made. And uh, the reaction um, uh, can often be a lot of uh, yelling and screaming. Yes. And, you know, that's not fun. Or misunderstanding. Yeah. Or misunderstanding. And it stops people from trying again. Um, and so um, we ask every day, like, how do we create space for folks to fail for it? Yeah, that's an important thing to do. You mentioned celebrating other people's failures. I think that's a key term right there, especially when you're talking about government and the public sector. Because, you know, in the private sector, we celebrate failures all the time. They, they do it behind the scenes. They spend all kinds of money, billions of dollars on research and development. And, you know, nobody nobody bats an eye at it, when, but except when the, the product comes out and it's great and they love it and, you know, people buy it or they, they use it or whatever the case may be. And in government, it's a little bit of a different story. You have, you know, if, if somebody goes out and says, hey, we got a $2 million project. Oh, it failed. It's in the news. People are going crazy. I can't believe they wasted $10 million worth of or $2 million worth of taxpayers' money. How do we change that stigma to say that failure is an option? And if we want to be better as societal uh, organizations, if we want to be better as, in the public sector, we, we want to change and we want to innovate, we have to be able willing to fail and to be able to take some risk, not a lot of risk, but some risk, right? How do we change that stigma? Yeah. I mean, Brent, I think it's not just recognize that failure is an option and it's not to be disheartening uh, that we're failing right now, right? We do not meet resident expectations. Um, we are not being, when we go out to recruit, we're not being compared to other governments in our area. We're being compared to other employers writ large in employing yourself. Um, when we, uh, have our website, right? No one is looking at whether we won the NACO or the NLC award for best website. They're comparing it to their experience on Amazon and on eBay and on Google. Um, and so our current reality is in many ways, if it's not meeting our resident expectations is a failure. And so recognizing that I think that really can be really freeing to say, if the current state doesn't work, then we have no choice, but to step into a better future state. It's a brilliant point. But it doesn't quite speak to you. You have this other question, like, well, how do we actually then, okay, if we recognize that we're failing, how do we then create the space for risk? Um, and we talk a lot about that in terms of, we would say um, sort of a, a value that we have here is starting small and scaling. Uh, starting being the really critical thing. Um, but when we think about change, you know, it's not Brent, like uh, there's a big, um, a blue ribbon or red tape committee. And we all got together and we just put red tape all over the place. Right. And that's how we got to the place that we are. Um, right. All of the red tape is little good ideas that got staggered on top of each other until they're the big snowball nests of bureaucracy that we have now. And so I think the way that we get out of that is by snowballing in reverse, lots of little teeny small changes that snowball um, in bits and pieces. And so that involves making lots of very small risks. Um, where rather than lining everything up and we take a giant step forward and jump off the cliff with this big trillion dollar change initiative, we're saying, hey, like we're going to try something. We're posing everything as a bit of an experiment, as a bit of a prototype. Um, we're going to take one little step. If it doesn't work, that's okay. We can step on back and we can try another step. Um, and so it's really about breaking that, that big change and those big risks into smaller risks, uh, making the invisible visible, surfacing those assumptions in ways that we can then go and test them. So I want to touch on that just a minute, too, because you talk about breaking big risks into smaller risks. And the first thing that comes yeah. to mind for me is agile. 
right? You talked about uh, uh, the the Peak Academy and and how you guys are using sticky notes and the Kanban boards and things like that. So when we when we talk about breaking those down, do you actually use any kind of agile methodology in in what you're doing when you're when you're trying to achieve this? Yeah. So. Um, when we show visual management boards, we show different forms. We, we blend from a fair number of different methodologies. Um, so um, we'll use some agile. Um, we like like people. It's funny. We the one of the risks is you show lots of different forms of production boards, and people just see to do doing DOM in the backlog, and like boom, that's it. That's so valuable. We just want to go right there. Um, and um, when we work with partners, um, we'll borrow concepts from agile around making sure that there is a strong owner. Uh, and that we're working in sprints rather than spending a lot of time planning all of the work out with some old-fashioned Gantt chart and then seeing what happens from there. Um, so we're not pure, a pure agile shop, um, but it's beginning to take as you as you know, it's about getting that mindset in um, of uh, of doing for learning um, and breaking things into smaller pieces. So as as you begin to implement more and more agile inside of your IT shop, what do you see about how it spreads outside of IT? In, in the way that you work with partners from an organizational point we've we've tried yeah. to make it change because so there's there's two camps in the agile world okay there's the yeah. agile was designed specifically for software development and nothing else and nobody else can touch it and it's ours and get away and blah 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 there's that camp and then there's the camp that i reside in which is the agile can be used for absolutely energy anything period no matter what it is right we can use it so even for traditional waterfall methods when we're building a house yes you can use agile for that it's very difficult but you can do it um so you know there's a time and a place but we we try i really would like to see other organizations adopting agile in a way yeah. that uh just to be flexible and to be able to to react to change. I mean, that's what it's about, right? It's about reacting to change very quickly, very effectively, and coming to a conclusion and coming to some kind of resolution as fast as you possibly can, whether that be a product that you're pushing out, whether that be a service that you're pushing out, whether that be a change in a service, whether that be a, a, a whatever the case may be. So yeah. Brent, I'll, I'll never forget when we were launching a, uh, a budget app for, for budgeting for outcomes, and you had the budget team uh, as your owners in that room with all the sticky notes up of that board and you had, and it was just really cool to watch the learning that happens when you take an organization that traditionally plans six months out to plan. Um, and yet we had to launch something really quickly that satisfied some user needs. And it was a really fun blend there, um, uh, of sometimes how powerful it is just to simply do exposure. Um, which I think is a, is an important role for any innovation shop is sometimes building awareness and exposure of other methods. Um, and creating space for others to discover other ways of working that are out there. Absolutely. We're going to move on real quick. And I want to talk a little bit about, okay, earlier we talked about equity. We, I want to get into the topic of racial equity, but I want to start first with digital equity. And where is Montgomery County on the, on the, on the grasp of digital equity? Yeah, we've got a great leader in Gail Roper, who's our CIO, um, who is leading a lot of those efforts around digital equity. Um, and we see it permeating every space of, uh, of life. When we think about digital equity, um, we think about, uh, do people have access to, uh, the internet, right? So they have access to, to the flow of information. Do they have the tools? So the hardware to access that, and then they, do they have the skills? Um, and we don't do very much of that work, uh, in, in the innovation job. So I don't, I'm not directly connected to that work. Um, but really lucky to work side by side, um, with an incredible IT team. Um, and Gail is a pretty transformational leader, um, 
uh, and came from Google Fiber. So she um, uh, knew a bunch of this work from another side as well, which is a great perspective to have. One thing we've been thinking about, Brent, is um, as I was interested in your, um, I think a lot about what, right? You moved us when we were, when I was in Chattanooga, you moved us all over. And those migrations are always tougher than they seem to be. And one of the things that I've been reflecting on Brent as is the value that those transitions have um, for growing the muscles for people to transition and to, for people to question. Um, because I think that, you know, so often we think, oh, it would just be too hard to make a giant transition from one system to the other. And there would be, you know, don't change the horse midway on the, on the stream. And we think, you know, going to budget for, um, uh, for Microsoft is easy because you got the whole ship, the whole package. Can you imagine if we had to go back to council for new budget for using Slack or for Zoom or all the things that then get, need to get added on? Um, and so I was a fan of, of sticking with what people knew, especially because we have, uh, right, there's lots of struggles inside the bureaucracy with digital literacy, um, as we saw in Chattanooga as well. But I think that the, the value of making those switches was that you taught all of us to begin to look for other ways. Um, and so when tools don't satisfy us, is it just IT who's bringing up the other solutions? Or do you have people across the organization saying, hey, I'm looking for another way, um, which then also allows them to uncover uh, different tools in their own toolboxes that already exist with existing no-code solutions? Yeah, I think it's I think it's both. I don't, I don't think it's it's not IT's job to come around and say, hey, this is the tool you're going to use. But, you know, it's also not our job to come around and say, hey, this is the tool you can't use. Right. It's yeah. it's one of those. It's a it's a marriage, so to speak, in, in, in a partnership. And when you talk about this, I, I think, you know, IT's role has changed over the years. We're not just in the back room punching buttons and plugging wires in and doing things like that. It's more of an innovative type thing. And it's more you, you got you got to be out there on the front lines and figuring out what people are doing how they're doing yeah. it and how you can make their jobs easier and better when you're talking about it from a technology standpoint, from an IT standpoint. So, you know, when you yeah. talk about making those big changes like that, yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a, that's a dual role. There's just a lot more human behavior change um, that we're seeing and like the, the, the need for IT to be able to shift into that behavior change space. Um, because there, you know, as we've all seen in the remote world, there are, you can, you can use Slack and you can use teams but do use them well. And it is shocking how often we see everyone using chats instead of channels and really small things that are not about the, do I know how to click in the right space, but do I understand this tool so that I can use this tool? Um, and that's true with technology and, and without technology. Um, but the question is, is where's the space in our organizations to help people adapt to, to ways of working that are more effective? And that adaptability goes to another point that you made earlier and to reiterate is that uh, we're not married to one particular product, one particular source, or one particular brand, or one particular whatever. We are open to the idea that whatever can come in here and make things better, faster, more efficient, and more economical for us is the direction that we head on. And it, you know, you you can't just change every year and hope for the best. So there's there's some planning behind that, and you have to do things in a, in a, in a particular way. But you know. Um, don't, don't sit around. I see all these people sit around saying, oh, we're, we're totally 110% a Microsoft shop. We'll always be a Microsoft shop or we'll always be this, or we'll always be that. Nothing will ever change. Yeah. That is a fixed mindset. We don't want a fixed mindset. <laughs> yeah. Our libraries just switched over to a uh, open source solution, uh, which they're really excited about, right? And talk about potential to save a lot of money. 
uh, potential to, they think when they make changes, right, it then spreads across uh, the organization and also a lot of risk there. Um, so uh, it is it is people stepping into that space of saying, I want to try something better. And ultimately, that's the place where we have to get to. Absolutely. Okay, Michael, earlier we were talking about digital equity. Uh, now I want to kind of transition that a little bit into racial equity because the two go kind of hand in hand. So what is Montgomery County doing along the lines of racial equity? Uh, Montgomery County has an amazing leader in Tiffany Ward, our chief equity officer, who is leading a tremendous amount of work in this space. Um, but when, when Tiffany and I talk, one of the things that we, we sort of bond over is that racial equity is not the, off, the work of just the Office of Racial Equity and Social Justice. And the same with innovation is not just the work of the innovation office. It's, it's all of our work. Um, this is a space where usually I've got a role to step back. Um, and also a place where I'm lucky to have a, a team that can step forward and, and that can take ownership. Um, so we think about, um, make sure that people's lives matter in terms of the way that their time is respected, um, and where we focus our efforts. Um, and if we have like, so we look a lot at administrative burden and where are there, uh, undue and inequitable administrative burden uh, that's sapping people of, of their time in their lives. Um, we look at it right now. So we've got two projects that are, are focused directly in this space. One is on increasing the diversity of our police force. This builds on work that we did in Chattanooga. Um, and another is in increasing the diversity in our office, uh, in, in our, in our human resources. So, um, it means looking pretty deeply at the data, disaggregating that data. Um, and then, uh, going and taking a, a human-centered design approach um, to exploring what those challenges might be. So uh, Nitya on my team um, took a look at the language that we use in job ads. Um, and we began to look and see where different language um, uh, was knocking people out earlier in the process um, and where we might change that language uh, to make it more inclusive. Um, in the police world, um, Right. There's that though we're, we're, we're still in the early stages of this work. Um, and we are trying to make sure that we're thinking about, um, how we really rebuild the future of policing, um, which means changing who is in that police force, um, and the skills and perspectives that they bring. And it's, uh, and I think when we talk about our human centered design process, we also try to bend in the small things. So when we talk about downtime waste, um, which is like the, the, the eight waste of Lean Six Sigma, um, we've switched over I to be an equity. And so it's just sometimes creating that small equity pause. So when we say, hey, we're gonna map out, um, uh, you know, the two examples that people use when they map out a process is uh, to teach people how to map out a process is a visit to the doctor or a visit to the airport. And just by creating that space, removing inventory waste and, and, uh, and changing it to an equity waste, we open up a lot of space for conversation for people to begin to look at their own processes and see where uh, someone's race might be a predictor of their success in a process um, while also uh, decreasing outcomes for all. So go again on that, that, that lean standpoint that you were talking about, one of the th concepts there is going to the Gimba, right? Going to the source and yeah. do how, how is Montgomery doing County doing that? Like, bro, how, how are you bringing the, 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 the public in on this and, and these changes and, and what kind of input are they providing instead of just a bunch of guys up in a room going, Hey, I think we should do this. Let's make a policy. 
how, what's the difference there and how, how is Montgomery County doing that? Sure. So um, we just, <clears throat> we're excited to like improve customer service, right? Like many folks are. Um, and so when we wanted to improve customer service, um, we said, well, what, what are the resident expectations? And so the design team went out um, and went uh, making sure to compensate people for their time um, and did both follow-ons and in-depth interviews with people in high need of our services to begin to surface what their expectations are. So things like keep me in the loop, um, right? So if residents have the expectation to keep me in the loop, that means that for us, rather than thinking about government services, we're thinking about the people at the center, the centering of those humans from their own voices. Um, and that means that um, we should reduce the number of calls to three on one that are simply people asking, where am I in the process? So we're bringing tools of ethnographic research um, to, to go deep there. And there's some real challenges in that, right? Because the designers hold the role of the interpreter or the translator or the storyteller. And so we're trying to take these tools, the human-centered design tools, uh, and not just uh, adopt them from the private sector with those private sector values, but really to adapt them to public sector values at the same time. Um, that's but that's a journey as well, right? That's a real struggle. You know, it is much easier, you know, we say, oh, let's invite people to the table. And we say, wait, we want to do something better than that. We want to go to their table. And then we say, wait a second, maybe they don't want to be at a table at all. Um, and that's a, an evolving journey that takes consciousness and awareness raising, um, as well as taking concrete and tangible actions that are inside of our, our, our control as government. I think also the more we involve the public in some of these decisions and in some of these uh, policymaking endeavors, especially when it comes to innovation, and especially when it comes to, you know, uh, policy, when it comes to inequity and, and resilience, right? I think the more we involve them, I think the better. And by them, I mean us. I'm a citizen of my, I pay taxes. I'm a, I'm a taxpayer, but I have the advantage point of being in front of it all, all day long. But other people don't. And they only get little snippets of it and little pieces of it. And the more involved that I think that they can be, and especially the younger generation who's going to be, they are the future, right? So yep. the more we can get them involved in that, I think the better. You know, so uh, Brent, when this is, I'm going to go back to, because speaking with you, I think about the time in Chattanooga. And, uh, you know, I remember when Mayor Burke said, let's let's go build the best Mayor's Youth Council. And I thought, great, right? Um, I was on a mayor's youth council. I studied democracy for a long time, right? I know about cities like who better than me to figure out mayor's youth councils. And, uh, and so I wrote up these plans and I started pulling people things together and I was ready to go until someone said, Hey, you're not a youth anymore. And I wasn't. And so we had to rip up those plans and we brought in 300 young people in groups of 10 to 12 to design their own platform for youth voice in the city. Um, that Jermaine and Tyler and Chelsea and Molly and all those folks came together um, to make sure that those young people got to build the platform that they wanted, right? They designed the application process. They, just, they figured out um, how people would, would, would join. They figured out how the group would function, how it would work. Um, and I think that led to uh, their ownership and their strength and its resilience over time. Uh, and one of the, some of the more satisfying things, I still get letters from Mayor's Youth Council members um, today uh, from the first and second Mary's Youth Councils in Chattanooga, which is always a gift and a joy. You mentioned resiliency a little bit. Is there anything in particular going on in, 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 from the resiliency standpoint? There's a lot to talk, Brent, right? I mean, I think, um, you know, from a resiliency standpoint, there's 
a lot of this stuff is a lot easier to talk about than it is to do. Mm-hmm. And that's really important to recognize. So it's real, it's easy to sit in an armchair um, or to sit on a panel and to talk about, you know, things that I'm really interested in, like, gee, you know, how can government learn from mutual aid societies rather than crushing mutual aid societies? Um, how do we build a more adaptive and resilient organization? Um, and the doing of this stuff is a lot harder. Um, and I think that's just a, something that is worth saying out loud, right? From the privilege of the position where I get to be a chief innovation officer, I think it's really important to recognize um, that this stuff is difficult and that change doesn't happen immediately, um, but it snowballs slowly over time. Um, because those failures, even if you're holding space for failure, still are failure and still do not feel good on the way down or on that stumble. Um, but it's in the picking of yourself back up and moving forward that, that hopefully we, we create change, starting small and scaling, making those systems that are invisible visible, uh, and over time make life better for the people we serve. Absolutely. And given all that we've talked about already, from resiliency to equity to digital equity to uh, innovation, and it's like, what's a good takeaway for our listeners right now from uh, from a Montgomery County standpoint, as far as uh, as far as that's concerned? Well, I should probably say we're hiring. Uh, <laughs> I think you know, um, there's always openness for partnership. Um, so we have open innovation events uh, where we use lots of liberating structures to include and unleash everyone. Um, but we in government are here to serve. And um, there is an openness and a willingness for those who want to get involved. Um, if you have a skill set, um, you know, you talked about creating space for failure, Brent. And uh, part of that means that us in government have to acknowledge um, and be open about the problems that we're facing. Um, so I'll give an example. Um, Anna Chung, who now is a user experience person for the MBTA, um, heard something like this. And she reached out on LinkedIn um, and said, I want to be involved. And thanks to her, we, uh, we formed the first design by people fellowship where she was able to take her skills as a designer, even though she worked in the private sector and our incredible three on one team with Chris Turner and Brian Roberts, they said, Hey, we're struggling to put things in language that people can understand. And so when government was able to be open and share its problems and when residents, small C citizens were willing to say, Hey, I've got skills to contribute that unleashed a lot of space. So whether you're in government or you're outside of government, um, there is space for all of us to be innovating together. Brilliant. I was cool. going to say something and I totally lost my train of thought too. <laughs> well, I lost two things at the same time. You lost only one. Um, so yeah. Not a competition, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> On the failing front. We should probably we could do a fail off. I think that would be a fun, fun thing to rock and roll. I think that would um, be kind of interesting. I'm not sure how that would work, but that would be kind of interesting to do a fail off. Uh, uh, the Warwick Cities team tried to do a fail off, um, and uh, yeah, people get nervous about those. Yeah, uh, I would think they would. <laughs> but you know, again, that's that's a, that's that stigma. That's that thing that has to change because when people get nervous about talking about failure in the public sector. People get really, really nervous about it. They don't want to fail. And, you know, who wants to fail? Nobody wants to fail. But you know what? We learn more from failure than we do from most of our successes, right? So if we're not failing, we're not succeeding. We're state, we're treading water. We're not moving forward. We're not doing things, you know, we're not taking risk and we're not uh, uh, looking to change something. We're keeping the status quo. 
And that's just not cool. something that we want to do. Yeah. Cool. There's a better future out there, Brent. And thanks for bringing so many voices on uh, as we all try to, to uh, puzzle together to figure out what a better future might look like and how we can get there. Absolutely. And Michael Baskin, thank you so much for joining us this evening. And uh, good luck there in uh, Montgomery County with all the innovation and all the wonderful things you guys are doing. Thanks so much. Much pleasure. And that was our conversation with Michael Baskin. Thank you so much for watching, participating, or listening tonight from all of us at Civic Sparks and from your from my family to yours. I hope you have a wonderful holiday season, and we will see you for season two later in the new year. Happy holidays.